0: All right, so, I might not be quite as mobile as I would like this morning, because I rolled my ankle yesterday playing gaga ball with a bunch of eight-year-olds. I know that sounds crazy, but there are some sentences that only a kid slash youth pastor get to say. And I get to say, I rolled my ankle playing gaga ball with eight-year-olds yesterday. Let me say this, gaga ball is stupid. (laughs) I don't like it, and I decided after watching these kids play, I'd only tried it once before in my life, I decided, you know what, I'm going to hop in there into the gaga pit. Sounds scary, right? It was. And I rolled my ankle, and it's still a little tender, but I'm trying to move on it a little bit. But anyway, I sat back, and I was watching these people play gaga, and some of the counselors, and some of the kids. And I decided, you know what? I can't just sit back and tear. I've got to get some skin in the game. So I hopped in there and immediately injured myself. But anyway, this is what we're talking about with the book of Acts. We started this series called Act It Out. It's all about the early church deciding, hey, it's time to get some skin in the game. It's time to spring into action. Right? This is following the uh, resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit came upon the church, and it was time for them to move, to start acting it out, to take the gospel to the nations. So we're going to skip ahead a few chapters today, but don't be alarmed. We're going to move back when uh, Pastor Phil is back. We'll be moving back to cover the chapters that we miss in the coming weeks. So today we are introduced to one of the most famous biblical characters of all, the Apostle Paul. This is where we first see an introduction to Paul. And I would say that apart from Jesus, nobody in history has made a bigger impact on the gospel reaching the world than the Apostle Paul. And we're familiar with his letters in the New Testament. We uh, quote a lot of the scripture that he wrote. Things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or to live is Christ, to die is gain. Or, you know, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I guarantee somebody in here, probably half of you, have something hanging in your house or a coffee cup with something that Paul wrote on it. He's made such a deep and lasting impact for the sake of the gospel. But before we knew him as the Apostle Paul, we saw someone who was more opposed to Jesus than anyone in history. His name was Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, someone who hated Jesus. Now, this was the same person, but they were split in the middle by an encounter with Jesus. What separated Saul of Tarsus from the Apostle Paul was an encounter with Jesus right in the middle that changed everything for him. So we're going to start today reading in uh, the book of Acts chapter 7 towards the end. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, so uh, bear with me. So we're going to pick things up in Acts 7 verse 54. This is right after Stephen, one of the disciples of Jesus, delivered this big sermon, and he was calling out these uh, religious leaders and these Pharisees preaching about Jesus. And right after their sermon, it picks up, it says, When they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of his execution. So as Stephen was tortured and stoned to death, standing by watching in approval... Was this young man named Saul? As Saul watched in celebration while Stephen took his final breath. See, Saul was a religious leader, he was a Pharisee, he knew the law better than almost anyone, and he worshiped God with zeal and with passion. But as far as he was concerned, Jesus was blasphemy. He hated the name of Jesus, and he would stop at nothing to kill the name of Jesus, to stamp out the Christian movement once and for all. So in our introduction to Saul, he's holding the coats of the man who stoned Stephen. He cared more about keeping their coats clean from the dirt than he cared about the spilling of this man's blood. So this is our first mention of Saul. But we know God was not done with him yet. And the way this is written, it sets up uh, us up to see Saul as emerging as the face of the opposition of Jesus. In fact, Saul, it was his primary mission from this point forward to destroy the church of Jesus. And he enters this story as the face of a movement to stamp out Christianity. But Saul had no idea what was triggered when Stephen was stoned to death. See, as we continue, what happens in chapter 8 was this chain reaction or this uh, domino effect that was caused by the death of Stephen. Acts 8.1 goes on to say that on that day, after Stephen was martyred for Christ, it says on that day a great scattering of believers began. So this persecution of Stephen caused the church to scatter and to tear its way into new mission fields. What I love about this is through the death of Stephen, believers began to spread out and take the gospel to Judea and Samaria. This proves to us this, that God is sovereignly at work, even in the bad, to bring about his good. God is sovereignly at work in all things, even in the bad, to bring about his good. See, Jesus promised the disciples in Acts 1-8 that they would go and make disciples of Judea and Samaria. And these religious leaders, in an attempt, uh, attempt to stamp out the Christian movement, they stoned Stephen to death. But don't miss this. Stephen's death became a launching point. For the spread of the church. To the very places that Jesus promised they would witness to. They thought they were doing a bad thing, but God had bigger plans. They thought they were stamping out the Christian movement. And God used this as a tool to send them where he promised they would send them. Let me tell you guys this morning about one of the most terrifying things I have ever seen in my entire life. Okay, raise your hand if you are not a fan Of spiders. There are not enough hands up. This is a weird congregation. (laughs) Spiders are the worst. There is nothing creepier than eight little legs crawling around. I'm doing it like I have eight fingers over here, but there is nothing creepier than spiders. Okay. Have you ever seen a mama spider that's carrying around its babies on its back? I see some hands coming up quick this time. Yeah, you will never forget that if you've seen that. So I saw this in the kitchen of my childhood home one time. Only we didn't realize there were babies on this big wolf spider's back. We thought it was, it looked hairy and fuzzy, like there was things sticking up all over it, right? We didn't realize it had babies all over its back until my dad swatted it with a shoe. I'll never get the image... Out of my head of what happened next see the mama spider absorbed the pain and it was crushed and it killed that big spider but waves of baby spiders were sent out in ripples across our kitchen floor there must have been millions of them I will never ever ever forget that moment we had bunk beds in my room and I remember running in I got on the top bunk and I probably didn't leave for a few days Like, I was not coming down to the floor. I just remember watching these baby spiders just ripple off in waves across the kitchen and across our house. This is a wonderful but creepy picture of how persecution looked in the church. When you saw someone like Stephen die. See, Stephen was killed for the sake of the gospel, but as he was crushed, the believers began to spread like fire. He absorbed that pain and he was martyred for the church, but the believers uh, were only, uh, this just sent them out in waves and they began to ripple through the nations for the sake of the gospel. See, God was still at work in the death of Stephen and this became a launching point where he was crushed but believers began to spread like fire through the nations. God was still at work and he was still doing something good. See, persecution and suffering might happen in attempts to harm the Christian church, but historically, this only stirs a greater fire for the witness of Christ. You see this all the time. The the real church stands up when persecution is in its face. A lot of nations where Christians are most persecuted is where the church is thriving and is the strongest. Now, why is that? It's because you lose a lot of the fluff. You lose a lot of the people who are just kind of halfway in. You're stuck with you know, the refined group of people who have devoted their lives to Christ. Persecution and suffering might look like a bad thing, but it only refines and strengthens the church. And we see that here in the book of Acts. I love uh, the use of this uh, analogy of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Got any Star Wars fans in here? I'm proving that I'm a nerd this morning. I love Star Wars. Uh, and yeah, Ron's up there like, woo! Yes. So in Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope, Obi-Wan Kenobi is fighting Darth Vader. And as the fight continues, he says, you cannot win, Darth Vader. You strike me down and I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That's what the persecuted church is like. You can hurt us. You can throw rocks at us. You can do whatever you want. The church will continue to grow in strength and in numbers, and God is not done working. If I get any emails about ruining a Star Wars movie for you, if you haven't seen it yet, you don't want to see it. Okay? I'm not spoiling anything for you. (laughs) But the church thrives in pressure and persecution. And in history, when the world turns the flames on, the name of Jesus just burns brighter and brighter. God's like, you know, you wanted to set my church on fire? Set it on fire. You did. Now watch the name of Jesus spread through the nations. You wanted to see destruction. You wanted to see ashes. But I'm turning it for good. And the name of Jesus will only become more famous through what you've done. It literally played right into God's plan. Even in the greatest attempts to disrupt what God is intending to do, God is at work and he will be glorified in all things. It reminds me of the end of Joseph's story in the book of Genesis, after God brought so much good out of the suffering and the persecution of Joseph. Joseph declares, you meant this for my harm, but God intended it for good. God can take any kind of mess, anything that looks broken, and he can still turn it for good. Now, chapter 8 reminds us the gospel of Jesus will not be stopped. Not then, not today, not ever. See, we're not going to read a lot of specific verses in chapter 8, but in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit took over, and we see uh, other disciples like Philip going into the nations Seeing people converted into Christ followers. Chapter 8 tells the story of uh, two specific conversions that Philip was a part of, where the Holy Spirit, uh, by divine appointment, set him up to share the gospel with people. Now we get those two specific stories, but there is no telling how many conversions were happening every day. Because every day, normal, ordinary people were being faithful and obedient and going out to share the gospel with the world. Now, picking up in chapter 9, the journey of Saul continues. Right, We see this opposition. The, the antagonist shows back up. And the journey of Saul continues. And he's become the face of this anti-Jesus movement. Picking back up in chapter 9, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues At Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way or the Jesus following, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here comes Saul. He's coming in hot, ready to arrest and imprison or even kill anyone who proclaimed Jesus to be Lord. His breath, as he breathed in and out, was composed of anger and threats for Christians, threats of murder. Saul was laying waste to the church, like an angry bull that was kicking around in a garden, trying to lay waste to all Christians. He'd become a bounty hunter, looking for all Christians to remove them. Things were breaking bad. The other Jewish leaders knew if any Christians were found, they better call Saul. He was going to do something about it The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard a voice, but they saw no one. So Jesus appears to Saul. Jesus himself appears to Saul in a blinding, flashing light. The account of this in Acts 26 says it was a light more brilliant than the sun. Jesus accused Saul of persecuting him because he had so violently attacked Christ's church. Basically, Jesus is saying, you're attacking the church, you're attacking me. Because I died for the church. The church unites together in my name. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? So Saul had an encounter with Jesus. And immediately we see this shift in him. From hostility towards Jesus to uh, total submission and surrender to Jesus. He went from hostile to Jesus immediately to surrender and submission. It says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight." And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about Saul, how much evil and how much he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias is like, there is no way. Great idea, God. I've heard about Saul. A visit with him might as well be a death sentence. But look, this is one of the beautiful things about the gospel. It is inclusive to all who believe. The gospel is for everyone. It will bring people to the table that you least expect, and it will bring people to the table that you least want. Your enemies, the gospel is for them too. The gospel brings people who could not be more different together, united in Jesus. Remember, it was once weird that you were allowed a seat at the table as well, and God isn't done bringing believers into With the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This story of Saul's conversion reminds us the grace of God knows no boundaries or limits. The grace of God knows no boundaries or limits. I want everybody right now who's sitting here. Bring to your mind an image of someone you know who you would say is furthest from God. I know you can think of somebody, somebody who you think there is no chance they would ever accept Jesus. The truth is this, God can change that heart too. We serve a God who is in the business of miracles beyond our wildest expectations. There is nothing impossible and no one unreachable for our God. He specializes in the impossible and he can change what we say is unchangeable. We cannot put limits on how far God can reach. The gospel is inclusive and is for all who would believe. When you start to think there is someone who God cannot change, you've forgotten two things. One, you forgot how powerful, loving, and gracious God is. That God showed us his love and grace through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And he had the power to raise him from the grave. If he had the power to raise Jesus from the grave, don't you think he has the power to resurrect that person's dead heart? From death to life through faith in Jesus. If God can raise Jesus from the grave, he can change that person's heart too. The second thing we forget is that we are all sinners. Undeserving of God's love. We're all born with hearts that are wicked and sinful. In Romans 8 7, also written by Paul, he says that we are all born into flesh that is hostile towards God and that our hearts are unable to submit to his power and his authority. Now, look what it doesn't say. It doesn't say some of us are born better than others, we're a little bit less sinful than others or that some of us are kind of good people but a little confused and kind of get off the way a little bit here no you and i and saul and everyone else born is born in a condition of opposition towards god and we need to be made new and alive by grace through faith in christ there is no one beyond god's reach and no one that can out sin god's grace No matter how sinful or rebellious you are, God's grace is sufficient for your salvation. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that where sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. You aren't too far gone and neither is the person next to you. God's reach has no limit. See, through the conversion of Paul, God declares to us his grace is sufficient for everyone. For everyone, every dead and lost heart, his grace is sufficient. Not only is God's grace inexhaustible, but it changes us. God's grace changes us. This became evident in the life of Paul. See, in Christ we become a new creation. Jesus changes us. See, nothing in my life could ever remain the same after accepting Jesus to be Lord of every part of my life. Jesus changes everything. When we begin to follow Jesus, we hit a U-turn. We turn direction completely. And Jesus is that turning point. See, a saved believer will always be able to tell the tale of two different lives. And those stories will always be separated in the middle by an encounter with Jesus. There was the old me, and then Jesus came into my life, and then now there is the new me. See, Saul experienced radical change. He became a completely different person, so much so that we've, uh, he famously began to be called Paul instead of Saul. He could no longer identify with who he was before. Read the story as it continues in chapter 9. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to uh, bind up Christians for the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. But when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill Saul. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Look at the difference in this man. Look how his life was so evidently changed. Paul's change was so undeniable and so evident, it meant his former associates, the people he used to run with, now had a bounty on his head. Paul went from storming to town to rip Christians apart to being carried out of the city in a basket by Christians. To avoid being murdered by his old crowd. See, following Jesus means swapping teams. For many people, it means leaving friends and family and loved ones behind. Because our affections and our desires are turned towards Christ. See, following Jesus is always going to cost you something. It might be a friendship. It might be a relationship. For Paul, it cost him uh, those old relationships. It cost him what he used to believe. He had to turn away from those things. His affections and his passions all changed, and it was evident to everyone around him. See, the proof of real inward change is indisputable outward change. You want proof that somebody has changed inside? Look at their life. Look at their works. The proof of real inward change is indisputable outward change. So let me ask you Does your life look different since you met Jesus? Seriously, does your life look different since you met Jesus? Do you actually look like a new creation? If your life is not different and it is not bearing fruit, can I ask you to evaluate what Jesus actually is to you? See, more important than what you say you believe is whether or not your life is any different because of it. You can sit around and say you believe Jesus, but we can tell by your life if that is true. Real inward change is evident because of indisputable outward change. Change. Some professing Christians prayed a little prayer one day and they feel secure, but they've never actually exhibited any touch of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The difference between the old you and the new you should be noticeable and jarring to the people around you. I love this story of uh, Augustine, who's regarded as one of the greatest theologians ever. His change was so radical as well. This story, uh, before converting to Christ, Augustine was known for being wildly promiscuous. Dealt constantly with sexual sin. And there's a story of him uh, after converting to Christ years later where he was walking down a street and a familiar prostitute, this lady he used to know very well, began to call out to him. She recognized him. She said, Augustine, it's me! And he began to run in the other direction. And she chased again, yelling, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. And Augustine turned over his shoulder and said, I know it's you, but it's not me. It's not me. I'm a new person. Second Corinthians 517 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Can you look back at the old you and say, it's not me. That is no longer me. The old me has been put away and it is now Christ that lives within me. The old me is gone and now I'm a new creation. I'm desiring holiness. I'm desiring a pursuit of Christ. Jesus changes everything. See, Paul went from being a persecutor of Christians to preaching among the nations. He went from being uh, probably the greatest menace to the Christian faith to being the greatest missionary ever. I love the way Charles Spurgeon says a burning heart results in a flaming tongue. We knew Paul's heart caught fire for Christ. And it resulted in a flaming tongue that could not stop proclaiming Jesus as Lord among the nations. We know who, Jesus, or, uh, who uh, Paul became He wrote so much of what we have here in Scripture. He went on uh, several missionary journeys. He went to the nations. He was imprisoned for Christ. He ended up being murdered for being a follower of Jesus. But he turned the world upside down. Seriously, beware a real convert. They will flip the world upside down. They will have a burning heart that results in a flaming tongue. They cannot stop preaching the name of Jesus. As we start to wrap things up this morning. I want us to look at what might be the most important change of all within Paul. Which is what he believed about how to attain God's love. See, maybe the most important change within him was that Paul went from being a self-righteous, busy, very religious, uh, active person who thought he was justified before God because of his works. But he went from that to realizing his greatest works could not save him. He then found that righteousness came not from what he did or how busy he was for God, but that righteousness came from resting in Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. Saul, before uh, Jesus, he looked like a lot of Christians today who think religious activity Correlates to God's favor or salvation for us. I love the way J.D. Greer says this. He says, The greatest obstacle to total surrender to Christ is often religious activity. The greatest obstacle to total, total surrender to Christ is often religious activity. It makes us feel worthy when we fill our schedules with church activity or volunteer work or good deeds that make us feel worthy Good and justified. But the truth is our greatest attempts at being good and earning God's love are nothing but garbage. They don't get us any closer to God. The Apostle Paul talks extensively in his letters about how if works actually mattered, he'd be on, the, on top. He'd be the top dog over all of us. Well, let me remind you, Paul is probably not a guy you would have wanted to hang out with. He was kind of a jerk at times. But he wrote this in his letters. He was like, hey, I did this for God. I did this and this and this. I was the top dog of all of this. And he says, if it were based on our works and what we could do to earn God's love, I'd be ahead of all of you. But he acknowledges all of his work and all that he used to boast in is nothing but rubbish. It's nothing. See, Saul of Tarsus found his confidence in what he did for God. But the Apostle Paul placed his confidence in what Jesus did in his place on the cross. And he rested in that. Love for religion and self-justification buried Saul. But a love for Christ raised him to new life. See, good works are important for us as Christians. But not for the reasons we typically think. They don't buy us any bit of God's favor. And Paul understood this after Christ. He said, look, everything that I did before to try to justify myself before God, it is nothing. All of my confidence is in what Jesus did for me. A life that is changed by Christ will bear fruit in good works, not an attempt to earn salvation, but as proof of God's salvation in our lives. That's one of the distinctions that makes Christianity so unique. See, most religions can be summed up this way. Most religions and worldviews world across the world can be summed up like this. Do good works and obey so that you may be accepted. But Christianity flips that on its head. The gospel says you are accepted, therefore go obey and do good works. That shift happened in Paul. He realized the gospel isn't about living, uh, is about living from God's love, not in pursuit of God's love. Good works happen because we see how generous and gracious and loving God has been to us, and it overflows in our lives. So you can put your faith in your own goodness and your own works, and you can watch it all crumble. In the presence of God's holiness one day. Where you can accept the righteousness of Christ. Which becomes our own when we believe in him. My students know I quote this verse probably every Sunday night. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. That means his righteousness. If you are a believer... If your faith is in Jesus, his righteousness has been credited to you. It's nothing that you could do. It's nothing that you could earn. It's the free love of God for us. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can be seen as righteous because Jesus took on our sin. It's the most uneven exchange in all of history. Jesus took on all of our sin and shame on the cross, and in exchange, he credits you with his righteousness. See, an encounter with Christ gives us a faith that can't help but do good works. We operate out of the abundance of love and grace given to us. Good works should overflow and constantly spill out of the life of the Jesus follower but it's not an attempt to earn God's love or to earn his favor it's because we have been given God's favor through what Christ did for us already through what Jesus accomplished on the cross the band's going to go ahead and make their way up person sitting in this room if you are a believer in Jesus your life should be drastically different than what it was before Jesus. Every saved believer should be able to tell the tale of two different lives. The old me, then the new me after I met Jesus. We see this in in Saul, Paul, in this story. If you cannot see a stark difference And who you are after believing the gospel, you may not have ever believed the gospel. Here's a little test for for you if that's the case. If the gospel has never seemed too good to be true, you probably have never really understood it. If his grace and love for you isn't unfathomable, unfathomable, you've probably never actually believed it. See, the gospel is that Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could not live. Because he saw us in our sin, in this sin problem that we could not fix. He came and lived this perfect life that we couldn't, and he died the death that we deserved in our place. Because of what he did, when we put our faith and trust in him, we are credited with his righteousness It's no longer based on what I did. Paul understood that. It's no longer based on anything I could ever do. Because it's already been done. It's been done by Jesus and it's credited to me. That's the gospel. It's Jesus in my place. If that's never seemed too good to be true, maybe you've never really believed it. Ask yourself that this morning as we move into this time of reflection. See, real encounters with Jesus make us different. We can no longer be the same. Those who believe and are saved are new creations. They look totally different than who they were before. If you guys would, bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. Just want to give you a moment to respond. Maybe you need to ask yourself, have I actually believed the gospel that Jesus took my place? The gospel will make you different. Do you see a difference in your life post encounter with Jesus? Maybe you've never made a decision to accept Jesus into your life. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning as well. Maybe you've been kind of on the fence or you've not really been sure. You can make a decision this morning to make Jesus Lord of your life. Put all of your faith and trust and confidence in who he is and what he's done for you. that's you and you want to follow Jesus this morning, you can pray and ask Jesus. Say something like this, like, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I need you. I believe in what you did for me on the cross. I'm putting my faith and trust in who you are. That's you this morning. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything, but I would ask you if you would take your connection card this morning. Right on that, I chose Jesus. I'm following Jesus. We would love to connect with you. We'd love to talk to you more about that, about the decision you made. Everyone else, just dwell on the beauty of the gospel this morning look at what it did in Saul one encounter with Jesus and he was never the same again his identity changed completely and he stopped seeing God's love as something he had to work for and he just simply received it through the person of Jesus Christ Jesus already accomplished anything you need for God's love. He did it on the cross and he said, it is finished. It is done. The work has been done. Your sin has been paid for. Dwell on that this morning as we continue to worship.